On the Empire Podcast this week, we have a real pair of acting heavyweights as Mr. Sean Penn drops by to finally prove that he really is mightier than Jeff Sword, while Sir Ben Kingsley comes along and brings a couple of his friends with him. All that and more on the movie podcast that simply cannot unsee the Randy Quaid sex tape. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Now, every week for the past three years, I've introduced these guys by highlighting one facet of their multifaceted personalities and riffing endlessly on it. Uh, But a regular podcast listener pointed out that there must be more to Ali Plum than knowing obscure film facts. There must be more to Phil DeSemlin than being an art house guru. And there must be more to Helen O'Hara than an unhealthy obsession with Supernatural's Winchester Brothers. So... Ali and Helen are here today. So tell me about yourselves. Give me something that I can spin out for the next 100 episodes. I I got nothing. I feel like my entire personality, apart from loving the Winchesters, well, Dean, has been erased <laughs> by this process, you know, over, over 150-some episodes. Uh-huh. Everything else has just vanished <laughs> like dust on the wind. See? See? It's he- difficult. Helen has shoes that are so sparkly they look like petrol... Uh, sheen. I do have a lot of sparkly shoes. This is something we may not have talked about on the podcast before. Um, yes, I don't know if I can. Sp- I don't know if I can spin that out. I don't know if that's something I can. I can use. Over I mean, with Cinderella next week, it seems like it should be a thing that would work for you, Chris. Now, yeah, yeah, Cinderella worked for me. Um, do you have any glass slippers? No, I don't. I tried a pair, but I find them a little bit unyielding and uncomfortable. Okay. How about Perspex pumps? <laughs> I do, actually. You do have a pair of Perspex pumps. Peter Piper picked a pack of Perspex pumps. Um, Ali, let's po- po- boil you down to... The popping on that is going to be terrible. I know, I know. I apologize, but the, let's see if we can do it. Peter Piper picked a pair of Perspex pumps. How many pumps of Perspex... <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Ali! Well, let's I was, boil you down to one one defining characteristic. I was thinking you could ask me about Plug Alert, the 1990s TV shows I've been watching recently. Yay! Because I watch a lot of 1990s TV uh, shows, uh, situation comedies, dramas, mm-hmm. gladiators. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I have a rival podcast which is set to overtake Empire's many millions of uh, listeners. Many millions. Uh, with almost up to a dozen people listening at any one time. Wow. wow. Yeah. I'm just put put in mind of airplane. So, tell me, Joey, do you like movies about gladiators? <laughs> I do like reality TV show competitions about them. Yeah, so you know, I do that. Uh, Chris may himself be appearing on one sometime Ooh. soon. Ooh. Uh, yeah, so you could ask me what I've been doing. Uh, what I will What I've been watching. What I have been watching recently. So that's what you want me to do from now on. Sure. So I ask Helen about shoes. Shoes. And you about TV programs. TV programs. This has not been as successful as I was hoping. Um, but okay, no worries. Let's move on then. We have questions, as ever, on the podcast. People have been sending in, uh, usually via Twitter, and that's no exception this week. At David Street 76 I'm sure he's been on the podcast before, asks, uh, which film have you owned more copies of than any other? It's the omen for me, says David. Seven copies from the TV copy to the Blu-ray steelbook. Well done, David. I think for me it might be speed, because the film the or film. yeah, you're not yeah, no, I'm to not a collection of to a drug problem. Okay, no. eighteen copies of a drug. Eighteen <laughs> copies. <laughs> yes, that would be a lot of copies. No, I think it might be speed because um, I bought it originally on VHS, uh-huh. and then obviously I started upgrading my collection to DVD. But for I didn't, I'm not very methodical about it, as as you know, because you get upset that I, you know file my DVDs by spine colour. Yes. Um, and so for a long time, I couldn't quite remember if I had already upgraded speed. 
Mm-hmm. And so I bought like two more copies of it on well, DVD. Just to make sure. Well, I, I, I thought I was buying them for the first time. And then, and then I obviously bought it on Blu-ray because it's speed. So you need it. I don't have it. What is wrong with you? I don't yes. have it. You have it on HD DVD. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I backed the wrong horse. That's that's pound that one in the ground. Um, yes, yes, I did. I got rid of them though. I got rid of all my HD DVDs. I moved house recently, and um, then you went clay pigeon shooting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that would have been infinitely more satisfying than what I did, which is uh, I have some to, to send to readers, which I haven't done yet, and uh, I gave the rest to Dan for his dad, who apparently has never forgiven Dan for recommending HD DVD over Blu-ray. So he sat with this useless monolith, and I donated my monolith to the local dump. I actually wrote a piece this week for a rival publication. Oh, Not a come magazine. on now. No, like a paper, so it's different. Um, but about VHS and how VHS collecting continues to be a big thing in some parts of the world. Um, and and there are people out there who, who have and are growing enormous... VHS collections. Um, so there's stuff that still isn't loaded, a lot of stuff that still never got transferred to DVD and, right. and it stands at risk of being lost forever. So um, so there's a massive and growing VHS movement. I wouldn't say massive. Like it's not as big as the vinyl movement because like vinyl obsessives genuinely think that vinyl is better. Yes. Um, and, and even VHS obsessives don't think you, that VHS You can't make that really argument. Better, you yeah. really can't. But, but they do think it's worth preserving and I think having talked to, to a bunch of them this week at uh-huh. Hello Viva VHS if you're talking Oh, um, I think there's, you know, there's something to be said for it. Yes, but VHS is massive. It's huge. Yeah, I mean, yeah it is. You know. it, it, I used to use them as like kind of Lego blocks. Make a little house out of them. You could do that. You could yeah. use, you could, I've done it. Well, you can do that, but apparently if you keep them against the outer walls of your house, you're at much higher risk of developing VHS mould, um, and you don't want tape mould, so you have to keep them on inner walls. Inner walls. Inner walls. That's, That's amazing. today's top tip on the Empire Podcast. Keep your VHSs on an inner wall. What film do you want more copies of than any other? Not surprisingly, uh, it's The Big Lebowski, which I have on VHS. I have it on the DVD that I think everyone knows it as. Then I have it on the DVD cover that has the alternate poster where it's them sitting on a sofa, mm-hmm. the green toe's there in front of them. Her life was in their hands. Now her toe is in the mail. That's the line on the front. Then I got a Coen Brothers box set. Then I got another Coen Brothers box set. <laughs> Um, because they were compiling different ones. And then I got the Blu-ray re-release, and I'm still looking out for the bowling ball release, where it's an actual DVD. I think it's not the Blu-ray, I think it's still the DVD, which is actually inside a small uh, Jesus bowling ball, purple bowling ball. That's pretty cool. Which you unlock like you would, say, a Kinder Egg. That's pretty cool. Smash it and then eat the pieces. You pop it in your mouth and you squeeze it a bit, and then you you take it out again. On a a slightly related topic, who's your favourite Coen brother? Gary. Gary Cohen. No, it's Phil. It's Phil. <laughs> nicely, nicely sidestepped. Um, Helen, who's your favourite Cohen brother? Ethan. Ethan. I typed him. Typed for him. You typed him. I typed him. He's okay. not real. Helen is writing him right now. <laughs> oh my god. How about I, you? I don't think it's going to come. Uh, uh, Cohen brothers. Yeah. No, Joel, because he's like he he rocks the ponytail, uh, which men of his age generally shouldn't do, but he manages to get away with it. Right, uh, the one that I have owned most copies of than any other. Have a guess what it's going to be. Evil Dead is Evil Dead. Yes, yes. No, it's Three Wooden Clogs. Um, I have it on VHS, Laserdisc, uh, Betamax. Uh, I have the Tree of Wooden Clogs DVD box set, which was actually a tree of wooden clogs with that you opened up to get the. No, I, I have it on tapestry. <laughs> tapestry is the best way to own wax. <laughs> wax the wax cylinder version of the Big Lebowski. <laughs> no, it's Evil Dead too. 
It's Evil Dead 2. I had on uh, VHS, I used to go to VHS fairs um, and pick up like horror films for like so cool roll on up quid. roll on up and we have horror galore and it was it was one of the first ones I ever bought that's where I think I saw it for the first time actually I bought it you know I was like oh Evil Dead 2 I've never seen this and I bought it and loved it uh, I have it I've had it obviously um, on DVD I have a limited edition DVD tin which doesn't fit into my DVD shelf which God. is really annoying um, and I have at the moment three Blu-ray versions of it uh, but I also have uh, three Blu-ray versions at the moment. I don't really know why. Of Hot Fuzz, I have a Steelbook. I have the traditional uh, re- release, and then I have it as part of the the Three Flavors Cornetto box set. Uh, I might watch them all one day. Just Do it. see if they differ in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but yeah, I've got I've got the Omen quite a lot as well. I've got the Omen box set, but I also have the Omen on Blu-ray. I also have the Omen on DVD, and so on and so forth. But yeah, seven copies, David Street. Wow. Amazing. Uh, here's another very, very quick one uh, from at Rick Yusuakas, and I am so sorry if I've mangled that. Uh, he says, a meteor the size of Texas is hurtling towards Earth. <gasps> oh, wait, no, it's hypothetical. Uh, you have time to save only one film studio because that would be the priority. <laughs> uh, which one do you save? Okay, first of all, we all know from watching, I think it was Deep Impact and or Armageddon, that a meteor the size of Texas is going to wipe out everything. That's too big. So I think actually he has missized his meteor here. That is an extinction level event, an Ellie. But you mm-hmm. don't realize that he's actually taking the studio and putting it into a spaceship. Yes. Oh, yes. okay. Well, yeah. now that does put a different complexion on <laughs> Well, but now then, we're talking. Hang on, who's going to watch it? Because everybody's going to be wiped out. Not Are we all on spaceships as well? Of course we're all on spaceships. It's yeah. like uh, Wally. Okay, so it's 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 women and film journalists first, is it? <laughs> That's who's going to be saved mm. from the planet. That's right. Because no, destroyed. It, we don't we don't see the world in, in those terms, Helen. Film journalists first. Save yes, journalists absolutely. First. Save the CEOs, <laughs> then the hairdressers and the estate agents. <laughs> we're we're going to need property deals on our new planet, guys. And we're always going to have to look good. So the hairdressers definitely. Film journalists. Okay. Telephone essential. sanitizers. Get on board. <laughs> This is a very weird apocalypse. Okay. Monkeys and organ grinders. So here's here's for me the big question. I mean, uh, I have to say, you know, at the risk of being self-parody, you know, my, <laughs> my first my first answer would be Disney because then you get Star Wars and Marvel and Pixar as part of the deal. Um, but I'm wondering, could they sort of save themselves because they're quite, you know big and they have all those superheroes and stuff so maybe they'd be okay you know walt has a red button that turns the castle into a rocket ship right yeah exactly so disneyland would probably be they they probably just save themselves i wouldn't have to worry about them yeah so really it's about the others because of course that star that goes over the castle is actually just a warning sign i mean universal has my beloved fast and furious and pitch perfect <laughs> the, the, so. That's why you're saving Universal. <laughs> I mean, forget Psycho. We'll have none of that. <laughs> okay. What? Those Jaws. are the most important things. All right. Yeah. Oh wait. So we're we're looking at back catalogue no, and not just I'm like look, everything going forward. I'm looking at the lot. I'm looking oh. at physically the lot. And I think if you had to get rid, if you had to save a lot, it would be Universal. Mm-hmm. If it was a back catalogue, I think Warner's and Paramount both, both have humongous mm. things. Disney, like you say, is just gargantuan. But we're and, ignoring and Asylum, on. aren't we? Because, I mean, they've, they would be very small to pick up. I mean, it's someone's laptop, isn't it? So no. we just take that, I'd put that in my rucksack, and then we'd be in space, and then we could watch movies and make them for so little money. Why Disney would, don't know how to make cheap movies, do they? Why would we want to save Asylum? Because Sharknado 3 is coming out, and its subtitle is, Oh, hell no. And it kind of doesn't rhyme. And it's got the <laughs> hoff in it. 
So we need to save I'm, all of that. I'm actually astonished that the Hoff wasn't in the first two. I'm, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. If Do you, you think don't he called up his agent frame and just by said, frame. "Why am I not in these films?" Yes. Yeah, I, I like bad movies. You know that about me. But but I watched the first Sharknado and and I couldn't I couldn't get behind this phenomenon. I'm sorry. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna veto that. Mm. I'm just gonna. That's just out. There's a video interview with. Uh, Stephen Merchant interviewing a couple of the cast members of Zombiva, mm-hmm. and they, they discuss why Sharknado is a terrible film. And the reason why is because Zombie and Beaver share a syllable, B, whereas Shark and Nado, Shark and Tornado, share mm-hmm. nothing. Nothing. Mm-hmm. The whole premise is flawed. That's why the premise is flawed, all Sharknado. right. Sharknado. just doesn't work. Why wasn't it like Sharkwind or World Shark? I'd see a film called World Shark, wouldn't you? N- I hope not. No. Or, you know. Let's just all acknowledge that the insane straight to DVD shark genre mm. peaked with Shark Attack 3. Yes. Like, I think we can all agree on that. But and you everything will... since then, and this is a big hello to the Forumites, by the way, who I know are big fans of that movie. I, I just don't think that they had anywhere else to go after that, you know? Well, apart from my Kickstarter, which is, of course, Whale Wind, <laughs> which is uh, really going to upend the whole genre of tornado-based swimming forms, yeah. aquatic okay. folk. And this is the sort of film that would be saved if we could yes, save Yes, that's correct. Island. So I think we've answered your question. Yeah, I think you know, Chris, it. who would you save? I, I don't, honestly don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, yes, because like Helen, I'm increasingly becoming a self-parody. I would save, <laughs> I would save Marvel, obviously. Um, but I don't know. I, Fox... Oh, who, who doesn't Fox. love Fox? Who doesn't have a thrill when they hear the, the Fox fanfare? And who wouldn't want Rupert Murdoch to be on the spaceship oh, with, with us all? <laughs> yeah. You know it's his spaceship, right? <laughs> it's his spaceship. Who wouldn't want that? And if we're um, talking back catalogs, doesn't Sony own MGM? Sony does um, uh, own MGM, So yes. that's a hell of a back catalog. But then, Helen, the Bond movies we wiped out. Yeah, so oh, that would be, shame. you know, uh, oh. there they go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, as a movie lover, which I hope we all are on this movie podcast, uh, there's a other thrill I get when I see the Universal logo or when I see the Warner's shield, uh, you know, especially what? from the 70s when it was a really cool, funky little thing. It wasn't, it was just like a logo. It wasn't even the shield. Yeah. You know, so... That W with the dot, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, do you really so want just, to... So what we're saying, okay, what all we actually the need to do, yeah, leave the rest of the planet behind, focus on all the studios and the indies. Yes. And like, you know, let's get some international film up in there as well. Leave it's really them. tough. It's really tough. It's really tough. Um, which is a studio behind Armageddon because we'd obviously have to save them. <laughs> yes, they've got expertise that might come in handy. Yes, they absolutely do. Um, the name of your shark, Windy Shark movie, should be Hurricane... Hurricane Karkaradin Karkaradis. Starring... Kim Kardashian. Sorry, Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian, Kardashian. Um, I'm doing well with the tongue twitches this week. Uh, our first guest this week... Oh, wait, no. How do you get in touch? Because that's important. If you want to get in touch with the Empire Podcast, and why wouldn't you? Uh, after we do unspeakable things to your questions, you can Twitter us. We're at Empire Magazine on the Twits, and the hashtag is Empire Podcast. And you can Facebook us, uh, Empire Magazine. And you can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. Uh, our first guest this week is one of Britain's greatest actors, a chameleon who won, and he's not an actual chameleon, um, he has chameleonic tendencies, who won an Oscar in 1982 for playing Gandhi. By that, I mean he doesn't cling to branches and change. Got you. Just blend it with the background. Anyway, since then, he's sketched unforgettable character after unforgettable character. He is, of course, 
Sir Ben Kingsley, who will be next seen in uh, next week's Robot Overlords. He popped in this week to talk to Phil, Dissimlian and myself, and he brought a couple of those unforgettable characters with him. It's quite a treat. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the star of Robot Overlords and the toast of Croydon, Sir Ben Kingsley. Hello, sir. Toast of Croydon because of my wonderful performance as King Lear. Absolutely. No, it wasn't mine. It was it was Trevor's. Trevor, Trevor Slattery. Trevor Slattery, who's a wonderful actor. But I, I, I said, I, I, when I, I last saw him, saw Trevor, I mean, he was in rehab. Oh, no. I, yeah. And I, I, I don't, actually didn't recognise me. So <laughs> I came in and I said, I said, hi, Trevor. He looks at me. Sorry, am I talking about Trevor or Ben Kingsley? Anyway, <laughs> Ben Kingsley came into my ward, my room, my chambers, and I said, I'm sorry, Ben, Lord Ben, but I don't recognise you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Huh? Have, you, have you played King Lear? When are you going to see your Lear, people say. And I say, I'm sorry, you're not going to. <laughs> Why do you, you not want to? Do you not just don't, don't want to do it? Don't want to touch it? Uh, I, I'll do the movie. One of the reasons I mentioned uh, Trevor Slattery and Iron Man 3 in my opening uh, yeah. there was because there's a line in Iron Man 3 that I think uh, reflects on robot overlords, which is, some people call me a terrorist, I consider myself a teacher. Now, that's exactly uh, a description that I could apply to your character in this movie. I think also that my character was very discontented with the world, with his universe, before the invasion. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, tragically, we know from European history that many people who were savagely discontented with their own lives in their own countries had their problems solved by the Nazis. Mm-hmm. In other words, they collaborated. And, and we in the British Isles have no idea how horrible that must have been to choose which side you stand on or... or how you defend your family, how you defend your own integrity, your loyalty. It's a challenge that, thank God, and thanks to our own courage in World War II, we, we never had to face, other than mm. the Channel Islands, of course. Um, so um, he has ceased to be a teacher. In other words, he's ceased to be um, a hander over of knowledge and wisdom. Mm. And he's now just um, a warden, yes. a keeper of people so that there is nothing in him that is any way educational or enlightening. He's just become a tool of the occupying forces. He wears an armband, he patrols the streets, and um, he is a kind of go-between between the occupying forces and the civilian population. He's, he's a character um, who seems very aware of the situation that he's in and very aware of the choices that he's making and the moral choices he's making. Um, he's very afraid, it seems, of the word collaborators. Uh, I presume Robin Smythe is a char- character who's very much aware of, of history and of Nazi Germany and of Nazi sympathisers and he's, he doesn't necessarily want to be cast in that light. I don't know whether in our robot world World War II has or hasn't happened. I mean, it is a, it is a fictitious, completely fictitious landscape and environment. All I'm saying is that we can, as an audience and as a culture and as writers and directors, bring some kind of knowledge to our storytelling mm-hmm. that will ring true. And if you inject into a beautiful film like Robot Overlords, which is a vastly entertaining film involving teenagers and adults, a wonderfully successful family film, mm-hmm. it will be successful partly because, all I'm saying is, a lot of it is rooted in possible truths. Yeah. 
that you will have the dilemmas solved by very intelligent, valiant children who decide to understand or discover what makes the enemy tick rather than throw bombs at it. There is one course of action in a, in a, in a science fiction film where your goodies will bomb the baddies and there's another version where your goodies will understand what makes the baddies work and dismantle it almost forensically and scientifically, mm. which is what our young heroes do, and that's the difference. And I think that's going to be the strength of the film. I spoke to John Wright, the director, um, a few months back, and he mentioned that Robin Smythe was based slightly on a teacher that you had. <gasps> Good, yes. That's cool. Um, can you just explain who that was? And maybe not mentioning names, but exactly <laughs> how, why this teacher ended up being an inspiration for no, you? No, well, uh, I, uh, John, uh, that's very generous of John. In fact, um, he's based on um, what I would call a composite of someone who has desperate social aspirations and will use any vehicle to empower himself. Um, and... My Smythe has chosen that path um, to to elevate himself. So he he has that uh, streak of of pretentiousness and pomposity um, that I never encountered at school amongst my teachers. They were gods, all of them. Oh yes, Manchester Grammar School. Okay, Come on. yes, it's a prestigious and esteemed seat of learning. But everyone has one teacher that kind of got up their nose. Robin Smythe apparently was a geography teacher. Mm -hmm. Guess what percent I got in my geography exam? <laughs> Can we say Guess. less than 80? A lot lower. Really? Seven. Seven no. percent? Yes. And now I tread the world... How did you get here? ...as if it were my garden. <laughs> Do I know where I am? <laughs> Ask the seven percent. <laughs> yes, the seven percent knows where I am. If you did it now, though... 93, I haven't got a clue. If you did it now, though, after all of your travels, you'd be you'd made it. I'd be you? better. Yes, geography. To be fair, it isn't just asking people. Where I'm <laughs> I know that. <laughs> it's, it's, um, I, yes, I do. But... I do. I do have a big Collins Atlas in, in at home in my little library, and I love going looking at the looking at it. I love it and borders and. Um, I do a lot of films in Europe now and, and in Czech Republic and, and um, Slovakia and, and Romania mm -hmm. and all these borders that have, that have politically changed mm. yes. dramatically since 1900. It's unrecognisable. Have you worked in Poland since Ashina's List? No, I haven't. You must have, I mean, because this has been the year of the, the, the obviously the, the anniversary of Auschwitz's liberation. It must I, have was brought in, back. I, was in, I was in Prague... Uh, for the 70th anniversary of the remembrance of the Holocaust um, with uh, Moshe and Cantor and all the great Jewish elders of Europe. And we all went the next day to a Theresienstadt concentration camp where I gave a reading as I did the day before and was amongst some extraordinary people. It's absolutely unforgettable period of my life to be associated with. Um, mm. The Jewish people, as their storyteller, they have embraced me and claimed me as a storyteller, and I find it an immense privilege that they have trusted me with that indelible but never-to-be-understood piece of history. It's a mighty film. I, is it a film that you've revisited yourself in recent times, or is it...? I haven't seen it recently. Um, I've seen clips of it, of course, mm -hmm. um, and uh, a quotation from it actually when I was in the Canary Islands of all places 
one of the uh, young members of the staff of the hotel, as I was leaving the hotel, um, filming for Ridley Scott, Exodus for Sir Ridley, as I was leaving the hotel, a young member of staff stood in front of me in tears and said to me, the list is life, the list is an absolute good. And I finished the couplet by saying, on all around its edges lies the gulf, and this young person just burst into tears and waved me goodbye. Canary Islands. Wow. That couplet wow. by, by, by that beautiful writer, Stephen Zalian, mm. has become mm. rather like Gandhi's an eye for an eye only make, ends up making the whole world blind. Mm. That couplet has become indelible in, in people's consciousness as a piece of truth, yeah. poetic truth. Mm. And to have collectively accomplished that as a filmmaker my contribution to Stephen's film, to have that line remembered is really something. Do you tend to uh, remember? You said it's indelible, that's indelible for other people, but do you remember I mean the historical and, act yeah. of the Holocaust is indelible. Yeah. But also that, that, that couplet and other couplets and other lines throughout your career, do you remember things like that? Because I remember, I remember them if they have been carved on my heart by a genius director mm. for all the right reasons... Um, in the right place under the right circumstances. Yes, I can. Mm. Yeah. Stop it. Stop it. For God's sake, stop it. That's Gandhi. Yeah. Shouting to the young uh, Hindu extremists who want to kill Muslims. Wow. Um, yes, there are. Fantastic. There are snatches. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm interested in some of the character details of Robin's mind. He has a handkerchief which he cradles. Mm -hmm. and, and dabs occasionally mm. the bow tie he's quite mm. sort of fastidious in the way that he's he's got a baseball cap it's so the that. fastidious exterior but it's just interesting in the way that you sort of craft those small character details because I know that when you worked on Shutter Island oh, with, forensic with Scorsese with you introduced the idea that the character would be English yes. and the pipe and yes. some of the, the kind of the, the clothing of Englishness to that, right. to that. Right. were there other films other character details that, that you've kind of brought to to the do you, do you turn up on set day one with those things that you've read through the script and you thought maybe maybe this maybe that will help and then work from there well i think what you're generously referring to ha has its basis in a really well written script mm. um and if one can recognize genuine patterns of human behavior in a beautifully written script then you can start to externalize and it's quite quite thrilling um for m my um heroic hero, Don Logan, um, heroic villain, I yes. should say. Um, it was decided, and I know is very much party to this decision, that you open his wardrobe and all the shirts and all the trousers and all the shoes are exactly the same. Yeah. Because he needs a uniform. He was a man who was probably rejected by the SAS because he was too violent yeah. and um, decided to be his own crack regiment. And that's what he wants to form when he goes to the island. He wants Ray to form a crack regiment with him, mm. and Ray won't. Yeah. Military, yes. After that film came out, did you have a period when whenever you boarded a plane, people would sort of shift nervously? No, I used to do it deliberately, didn't I? I used to scare people, didn't I? <laughs> I used to say, what the fuck are you looking at? What are you looking at? I used to scare them, didn't I? I don't, I don't, I don't get on an airplane scare. I do, do, I do done, don't I? I imagine if I was on a plane and Sexy Beast was was screening, and then I saw them, they, they won't saw show you, and you they won't the show it. Come on, they will never show that on an airplane. Oh, they could beep out virtually. <laughs> I the hope entire this movie. crashes. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a good point. A good point. You know, it'd be three minutes long. It's the authorised version. It would be a silent movie. Absolutely. Um, you filmed Robot Overlords uh, partly in my backyard. Not my actual backyard. That would be strange. But uh, I loved filming there. Yeah. The Northern... The, that film commission is brilliant. Yeah, they're brilliant. They're really good. In fact, um, uh, I'm produ- modestly producing films at the moment. And if one of my films get off the ground, I'm definitely filming it in Northern Ireland. I've already researched up in Northern Ireland in the shipbuilding yards and mm. and the uh, naval training uh, station. At, is it called Raleigh? No, yeah. it's not Raleigh. It's the other one. But you you have Harland, one in Harland and Wolf. That, you have that, one in, yeah. in Belfast. Yeah. Yes, okay. uh, I love filming there. The crews were amazing. Yeah. The landscape's beautiful. Uh, it lent itself to our story beautifully. Um, every uh, a lot of the extras who non-speaking parts were terrifically collaborative. Mm. Uh, great enthusiasm. It was it was really a really happy memory of filming there. Fantastic. And uh, you mentioned you're producing. Uh, are you producing anything that's coming up this year? Are you actively producing something? We right hope now? to have something. Um, I won't jinx anything, but <laughs> we are hoping to have a, something uh, filming in this autumn, mm-hmm. and then a mini series, perhaps next year, and also a low budget film either this year or next year. So we may have touch wood, touch wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, three things out of our six films green lit. So we're going to have to start acquiring other properties jolly fast. Fantastic. And uh, one thing I always like to ask is the uh, origin of a production company name. Your production company is Lavender Pictures. Yes. Why did you call it Lavender Pictures? Because my darling wife is Daniela Lavender. Simple as that? Yes. Simple as that. Fantastic. It's been a pleasure. We could talk to you about your illustrious career all day long. Is that oh, the time? Is, it is that us? it? We have to, have to get you to the Apple Store. Oh. We're running, we're running <laughs> late. Church on time. <laughs> Believe me, we could talk for hours. That was a great pleasure, gentlemen. Been, thank you very much indeed. Sorry, thank, thank you. Seriously. Thank you. Hey, should we have some movie news? Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, normally, I have written down some movie news, but I didn't this week. So, uh, hey, Ali's waving something at me. Ali, what have you got? Thomas Newman, notorious yes. composer of music film oh, music. that guy won't stop composing films. Replaces John Williams on Steven Spielberg's <gasps> new movie, Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies is a movie that is... It was originally written by another writer, but it then got re redrafted by the Coen brothers, <gasps> Phil and... Gary. <laughs> and that's why it's exciting. It's about the Cold War. It's about this downed U2 pilot. <laughs> Make the joke about Bono here. And uh, lost, Tom Hanks is... lost the edge. <laughs> and, I've been mulling that one over for ages. Uh, was it... Um, um, no, good move luck on. with Adam Clayton Jr. <laughs> so yes, Tom Hanks is playing this uh, lawyer who must you know, deal with the Soviets uh, in terms of getting him back, getting this pilot back. It's exciting. It's Steven Spielberg. It's not John Williams who had, he announced, mm-hmm. a minor injury, minor illness, which has since sorted itself out. Mm-hmm. And he will be back for the BFG, which is great news because I can see the BFG and John Williams going together very, very well. But in the meantime, it's Thomas Newman who is brilliant and mm-hmm. I think is a very worthy replacement. Mm-hmm. This is the first time we've had a non-John Williams Spielberg movie since The Colour Purple without you. <laughs> I have a question. If it, you've called it several times, there a Spielberg movie. If John Williams doesn't compose it, is it really? Does that count? What does Ian Freer think about this? Uh, uh, Ian Freer took it quite well, oh. I, I think. Yeah, he was he was okay with it. Um, he pointed out that only one other movie, aside from The Color Purple, has theatrically released movie yes. has not been scored by. It, yes. Do you it, know what it is, Helen? Nineteen forty-one. No. No, I don't know. Do you know? 
the Twilight Zone, the movie. That's right. His segment of the Twilight Zone, the movie, was not scored by John Williams, nor was uh, Jewel. That's but not one. theatrically released in the So, there we go. Hmm. Uh, very interesting news. Uh, we wish Mr. Williams all the best, obviously. Seems like he's got over the minor illness. Uh, he's scoring Star Wars The Force Awakens as well. It's going to be... It's going to be interesting, I'll be honest. I've, I've long wondered what a Steven Spielberg movie would feel like without John Williams. And uh, I think I've said this on podcast before, I'd be intrigued to see what it looked like recently if he doesn't go with Yanis Kaminsky as, as, as the uh, DP. But I believe that's not the case on Bridge of Spies. But yeah, Thomas Newman is very, very good. And I think he's one of those trivia questions, isn't he? He's one of the guys who's been nominated for loads of Oscars, uh, but never actually won anything. Well, maybe this will be his his year. Fingers maybe crossed. It, indeed. Maybe. I, I hope he does go with Kaminsky because I think he's he's great at, you know, dark rooms with people talking and making that look really fascinating. Newman's done the likes of Road Petition, The Green yeah. Mile, so he is, you know, mm. Shawshank yeah, Redemption. Shawshank Redemption, yeah. yeah. And, so he uh, has Tom Hanks previous. Yeah, he does. He does. And he can, he can write for that face. Skyfall and Spectre as well. He's about to do Spectre. And I, I liked his uh, score for Skyfall, actually. So uh, he's he's very, very good. Very good indeed. Well done, him. Uh, yes, Hell's Bells. Hello, I have news of Preacher, um, a comic that you and I both like. Mm-hmm. Uh, a comic I love. Let's, let's, let's well, get yes, that okay. right. Fair enough. Um, uh, it is, of course, headed slowly to the screen. We've been told this before, but it does seem to be moving a little bit faster this time. So uh, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg and Sam Catlin, not to be confused with Claflin, are producing. And they have found their tulip. Uh, Ruth mm-hmm. Negger, mm-hmm. who's been in World War Z, uh, 12 Years a Slave, but is probably best known to most of you right now for her role as Raina in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or if you're still in season one, the girl in the flowery dress. Um, she's going to be playing <laughs> the basically former girlfriend and traveling companion, I guess, of Custer. He is our hero. He is the preacher of the title who becomes infused with the power of Genesis, which is the offspring of an angel and a demon, Mm -hmm. which gives him a power equal to God himself. And he goes off to find out why the Almighty buggered off. Um, Tulip is a very, very, very important character in that journey. Uh, It's basically a a sort of a three-hander through the through the story it's Custer Tulip and a vampire called Cassidy mm-hmm. who's turned in the middle of the Irish rebellion of 1916 Bigora an Irish vampire yeah Our, Irish vampire Irish vampire <laughs> he's vampirish I don't know why my accent went really bad there it was a terrible <laughs> Irish accent and I've been doing one for years anyway that's anyway, a much better one um, so I think this is a this is an interesting first piece in the puzzle um, she's really good in S.H.I.E.L.D. she's played a lot of sort of different facets in that role you know she's been at one hand kind of seductive and very charming and then on the other hand quite quite terrifying and I think that's probably something that Tulip has to have she has to be really tough as well as mm-hmm. as really really kind of winsome so yes. uh, full marks for that intriguing casting indeed um, I guess quite famously the model that, that Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon used for Tulip in the comic book was Cameron Diaz mm-hmm. um but yeah, this is, this is very, very cool. This is the first bit, bit of casting. Yeah. Uh, I'll be really intrigued to see who they, they get as Jesse Custer and Cassidy is going to be the big one. There's such a lot to the books. I mean, there's what, nine in the series collected? Well, 66 issues. Yeah. I, they've got it. They've got to trim that down. So I wonder how much of the really weird characters are going to be in there. I would hope as many as possible because that's, <laughs> honestly, that's what gave Preacher for me. It's it's unique uh, flavor, um, and this is one of those, those those bits of casting that is going to be really really interesting. If you want to root out online who the massive racists are, uh, something like this is going to root it's people out. It's always good, yeah. So anyone who has a problem with this, come and see me after class. Uh, 
yeah, she's very, very good. So that's good casting indeed. Anything else? A couple of quick little things. Um, Emma Thompson and Kevin Klein have joined this live-action Beauty and the Beast. Mm. Uh, so Emma Thompson, uh, I mean, obviously you think her and you think, ooh, isn't she great? I'd love to have a nice cup of tea with her. <laughs> Which is perfect because she's playing Mrs. Potts, who, of course, in the Disney version was a teapot. Segway to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just I'll just go, shall I? Um, and then uh, Kevin Klein will be voicing... I don't even know. Belle's dad. Belle's dad. Who is the insane conventor contraption man. So basically, it's kind of the role he played in Wild Wild West, just Ooh. aged up a few years. Ugh. Like eccentric inventor. Yes, yeah, with big cash. Yeah. But if he's in this, does that mean that Las Vegas 2 has been put on hold? Surely he can do both. We wouldn't want to see Las Vegas 2 put back. We wouldn't. Well, <laughs> well, you know, you know, because then you wouldn't be able to do it. I'm not even sure it's been announced. No. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this is obviously the film that stars Emma Watson as Belle, Dan Stevens as the Beast, and Luke Spirit Evans, Animal. yes indeed, Luke Evans as the awful Gaston. Ruddy bloody Gaston, isn't it? And Josh Gad as LeFou, who's Gaston's sidekick. Genius casting there. He, they do actually all quite resemble, mm. I'd say. I, I, it's not quite right because, you know, teapots. But they do all fit in for me. None of these do I go, oh, God, that's an awful... That's a real leap. Mm. But I think having a spirit animal, Dan Stevens, as the beast is brilliant. Also, when he announced it on Twitter, he said... He found a picture that said engaging beast mode or beast mode enabled. And he tweeted that, and that's now got thousands and thousands of retweets. Quite right, too. Mm. Absolutely. I'm excited about this one. I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be good. Um, Cool. And finally, uh, very quickly, Flash Gordon is in development, apparently, at Fox, and mm. is apparently going to be a sequel. Oh. According to original star, you've seen him in Ted, mm-hmm. Sam Jones. Um, so, yeah, a sequel. I mean, obviously, they set it up at the end of the last one. I can only hope that they do a sequel and they bring back Brian Blessed. Could they get Luke Evans to play you-know-who and say a bloody... Bastards. <laughs> you bloody bastards. I really, Luke Evans would be a really, really good Timothy Dalton uh, in, in that movie. He looks great in green, as we know from my sketchbook. <laughs> and this, this, I think a sequel is insane. But then again, going back to Flash Gordon's insane. Everything, so yeah, everything about Flash Gordon should be insane. I want Flash Gordon to have a crossover with Fast and Furious because then we've got a movie going on. Who, who should write the score? I mean, obviously, the last time we had all the songs by Queen, who was the modern-day equivalent? Uh, Queen, Helen, they're still going, but with yes. Adam Lambert as their lead singer at and, the moment. And actually, my brother went to a concert and said it was amazing, but... Really? Yeah. Wow. But okay. who should... Who is the modern-day equivalent? You two. You two. <laughs> I was probably not going to say that, but sure, okay. That'd be good-ish. <laughs> um, uh, Muse are the new Queen, aren't they? Are they? Aren't oh. they? No, I want somebody a bit more fun. Very theatrical and over the top. Yeah, theatrical, yes, but maybe a bit more fun. Rihanna? A bit more fun. Yeah. Yeah. Rihanna. Yeah. Well, we'll get back to her in a bit. Well, my knowledge of, uh, of modern chart music, what the, uh, the kids are listening to these days, is not as good as it used to be, but I imagine someone like Jay said or... Beyonce? Beyonce. Uh, someone like that would be, would be very, very good indeed. Uh, I've got a little bit of news. You just can't monopolize the news, you guys. I've got some. Some actors have joined the Huntsman, which for a project that 
really nobody's demanding has got a cracking cast. I think so, we're, we're, this is our pet project. This it time, is, isn't it? it? Oh, and we should talk about Steve Jobs and, and the fact that Phil's not here, but we should talk about that very, very briefly. Um, uh, so, previously on The Huntsman, uh, we've got Chris Hemsworth. Yes. We've got Emily Blunt. Yes. We've got Charlize Theron. Woo. Right? We have Jessica Chastain. Excellent. Right? They have now been joined. Nick Frost is returning as one of the dwarfs. Excellent. He played one of the dwarfs in the last film. Um, and One of the eight dwarfs, yes. One of the, uh, and his character's name... Was Neon. Um, Nyon? Back by yeah. contractual demand. Oh, I don't... Cynic. <sighs> uh, also, joining him as dwarfs in this one, Rob Brydon. Is he a so dwarf? He'll be a dwarf, yes. Gosh. He'll be a dwarf, and he, he'll, you'll know him. He'll be the one doing the Tom Jones impression, and then going, eh, 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 eh. Uh, Alexandra Roach. Interesting. Yeah, also, so it's two Cuban Fury stars as dwarfs. <laughs> and they're both Welsh. They're both Welsh. Nick Frost is Welsh. Oh, Rob Brighton's Welsh. Yes, good. Very good. Um, Nick Frost and Rob Brighton play golf together. My mind is blown. <laughs> Wait, no, it's okay. <laughs> Sheridan Smith. Sheridan Smith will also be a dwarf in this one. Okay. So that's, that's cool. This is a hella good cast. Well done, them. And the last thing we should talk about, um, if you've nothing to say about that, is the Steve Jobs thing. Because Phil's not here. Steve Jobs, the, the Danny Boyle, Michael Fassbender... Uh, Aaron Sorkin scripted movie about the the Apple blog is kind of Phil's thing, isn't it? You know, he's always banging on about it. And this week they that well, they didn't release. This week there was a poster that someone had taken a snap of. I think it was at some convention, and there was a a, a poster of. Michael Fassbender as Steve Jobs on top of the next, which is a computer that he brought out in the eighties, and it, it died in his arse. Uh, but paved the way for the iMac and all these other things that, that didn't die in our arse. Um, but the interesting thing, have you guys seen this? And Michael Fassbender in this image looks nothing like Steve Jobs. They've done that thing where they go, right, so does he look a bit like Steve Jobs? I kind of, maybe, okay. Are we going to make an effort to really actually make him look like Steve Jobs? No. So, given that, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. But I like that. I, I, I like too. that approach. I, I actually don't mean that as an insult. I truly think an actor can act as someone and not look like them. Yeah. You're playing a character. You don't watch... I mean, all the Shakespeare plays that have kings in them, you don't go, well, I don't really believe you as Henry VIII, one of the better Shakespeare plays, because oh, you don't look like worst. him. No, you just... <clears throat> it's a, it's theatrics. Drama. Yes. Acting. Act, dear boy. Sir Ian, Sir Ian, Sir Ian. Serene, serene, serene. And then Michael Fassbender plays me as a young man. They put me through the CGI mangle. So, do I play an old Steve Jobs in this movie or what? That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? No. No, okay, let's move on then. Uh, let's have uh, a second guest, shall we? Let's yes. do it. Shall we? Let's do that. Uh, our second guest this week is also one of the greatest actors on the planet and one of the greatest humanitarians on the planet. Oh. Uh, he has two Oscars to show for the acting part. No but, Oscars you know, for the humanitarian. No part. Oscars for the humanitarian. No, none. But a sense of self worth, I think, which is which is incalculable. Uh, he is, of course, Sean Penn, uh, who's taken a detour from the usually very intense. I'll do that again. He is, of course, Sean Penn, who's taken a detour from the usually very worthy, intense fare that drives him to have a little bit of Jerry action fun in this week's The Gunman. Uh, he spoke to Phil recently when he was in London. Can I just say? Yes. He just starts talking in this interview. He gets going. Just 
talk about the film. Sean Penn. Sean Penn, yeah. Yeah. And he's, he, it wasn't, it's by the Taken director who is... Or, it's Pierre Morel. Yes. Yes, there you go. So he's talking about that straight off. So I'm sorry if it's a bit abrupt, but there you go. You know, one of the interesting things to me about it is that we've gotten to a point, and I don't know how new an idea this is, but we're recognizing it more, where there is very little military action that doesn't enable military reaction uh, in, in, in ways that were unanticipated. And so this seemed like a kind of setup to, to discuss that in the form of a kind of high-octane movie, and that excited me. So what the world of that is, all of the aspects having to do with what you bring up, the, the world of uh, private contractors, um, w- w- otherwise known as war without oversight. Right. Um, um, war without accountability. Um, these are very current themes that we're, we're seeing much more today than we've ever seen them before. Yeah. And um, and we're experiencing the ramifications of it. You mentioned it's got some some action sequences, and, and one really stood out for me. It's got a cracking scene in in set in Spain in the countryside in this amazing kind of villa, and, and, and you've, you Javier Bardem's character, obviously, without giving away who he is, and it ends up with you and Jim Terrier and and, and the ladies trying to protect in a bathroom, which the bad guys have poured petrol under the door of and setting the place on fire. Um, it's a hell of a scene. Do you, how was that to film? Um, and uh, just wondered if it brought back any, any memories of State of Grace, because you had a similar... It, it did. The conversations came up. Did they? I, I, in State of Grace, well, yeah, it, uh, the answer to your question, and the short answer is it was hot. <laughs> um, walls of fire are very hot, more so in State of Grace, because we actually went through it. Uh, in this case, it was more around us, but... Um, um, I was led by my very um, courageous uh, leading actress, Jasmine, who yeah. was unfearful of anything. Really? And um, uh, such a trooper. So we just uh, played around in the fire. It's, uh, it is kind of like the opposite of the scene in State of Grace. For people that haven't seen it, that's you and Gary Oldman. Mm. You light a cigarette, drop it into, into the mm-hmm. petrol, and then basically run through the flames, which you guys did for real. Mm-hmm. And when Gary Oldman came on the Empire, into the Empire, did a web chat, someone asked him about that, and mm-hmm. he said, basically like, what were we thinking? Yeah. Well, I remember <laughs> what were you Gary, thinking? Gary lost a little bit of eyebrow there. Um, I was, as I remember it, Gary... Trying to remember who ran out first, who broke the wall first. In either case, it left him in the more vulnerable situation that way. But you, I, I know the concern was that if whoever it was, and like I said, I don't remember whether it was he or I that, that hit the wall of fire first, but if that person fell down and tripped up the second one <laughs> in the fire, it would have been very unpleasant. But I do remember that despite the gel... Uh, Gary uh, had some singeing. That's amazing. Did that create any unusual continuity errors with like one eyebrow or Gary Oldman no, in the next scene? No, I don't scene? think it got that bad. <laughs> I don't think it got that bad. I would just say that he smelled a bit like a dentist's office, <laughs> burned bone. That's a weird. That's a weird. A weird image. A weird olfactory image. Um, you are in without blowing smoke. Phenomenal shape in this movie. I don't know. Have you been in better shape in a film before? 
Uh, Ray Winston put it this way. He said, he, he said, you have an eight pack and he has a potty pack. <laughs> Ray Winston. I love that guy. He's a great actor. Great guy. Um, um, I, you know, uh, I, I think I probably spent most of my career getting out of shape for films. <laughs> yeah, right. Just based on the kinds of characters. But there was a lot of physicality in this thing and, and then just, you know, preparing for it. Uh, yeah. You, you know, you, you aired in, on, on, the, on the side of fitness, yeah. Yeah. I guess people are going to say, oh, Sean Penn could be born again as an action star. Um, I just wondered, I mean, without getting into all of that stuff, because you've given me a right grin, it... it was it fun? Is it fun to do this stuff? Because Pierre Morel has a real, he's got a real Ken for, for an action sequence. Yeah, he's very good. Um, you know, I, when you're dealing with, you know, emotional realities and exchanges in dialogue, there is more margin for error in pursuit of it. And I think sometimes that can make, depending on who you're working with, it can make for lazy circumstances if there's anything that I really liked about doing some of the more action-involved sequences, it was the, there wasn't much margin for error without, you know, and I'm talking about basically you know, somebody hurting somebody, breaking somebody's mm. nose or something, but the physicality of it, you're, you're working with another performer in very specific ways. And I like that, you know, I, I, as I like it in scene playing. Yeah. Doesn't, there's not so much room for, I guess, a happy accident if you're if you're uh, if you're doing an action sequence of like look close combat in this. Well, you know, it, I mean, except that you know, happy accidents in these things are when somebody gets hurt if they're not <laughs> exactly. if they're not too badly hurt because you get a very realistic hit. Did but you I get had, hurt? Um, I got hurt a couple of times, um, and um, you know, it was it was physical enough that we that all of us took a little bit of a banging here and there, but. Um, the the actors who I worked with in the scenes were very very good, yeah, and and many of whom had had um, a fair amount of martial arts experience and stunt experience in the past. So it was it was uh, nothing nothing devastating happened. You'd be really reaching to think that Jim Terrier and Jeff Spicoli could ever sit down and have a good chat, but they do both love surfing. There's that. There is that. So there's one thing they could bond over. Obviously, Jeff Spicoli um, in Fast Times at Richmond High is kind of a cult hero. Do people still come and, and want to chat to you about about him? Is he is he a character that people kind of come up to you in the street and want to? It comes up sometimes, um, but it's it's enough years ago that I, you know I'm not that that I, I couldn't say how aware I am of how many generations it's jumped and people are aware of it still enough. <laughs> But but I, I guess it's it's kept some legs, um, and I hear about it sometimes. Have you revisited the film in, in recent years? I mean, was something yeah, you just set your, set your kids down I, with? I, I don't. I, I saw most of it when it played. I think it was on regular television, and so it was. It had censored areas and things like that. But uh, but I think I saw it with my kids at some point. They were watching it. Uh, you know, maybe 15 years ago. Really? What did that. they say? Did they love it? Uh, I, I think they liked it. I think so, as I remember. But I'm not, like, I, it's a little bit of a vague memory. A film that we love at Empire very much um, is uh, Carlito's Way. I can't not ask you about, about the look of that character, uh, and especially the hair. Can you, can you just tell me, explain a little bit about how you came to style him in that way? Because you shaved and you shaved back into the hair and then have a kind of a perm 
on top behind. Yeah, I had gone into uh, look magazines of the period and found a big portrait of a young lawyer um, from the period in which the book was based. And uh, and it struck it just struck me that this seemed like the look of the guy that I had read in yeah. the screenplay. So um, I started playing with it and cutting the hairline back and so on, and then uh, shaving back inside the to thin the hair in the back and the crown, and then got it permed. Yeah, and then the perm, the chemicals of the perm, kind of made turn my hair into a kind of like a dark orange. <laughs> That I liked once it happened, right. so I didn't end up using any color on it. Yeah, and it sort of fit what I, you know, the picture that I had in mind, and there we were. When you were away from the set, were you getting some unusual looks from from nearest and dearest? And it's not a hairstyle I recommend somebody in their thirties, uh, you know, in New York for four months of shooting with. No. <laughs> I came across a quote about your mum when she watched your first play and she said well you were just awful you've got to have something to fall back on yeah. which is something something my mum would say do you remember what the role was? yes it was um, it was a stage performance it had been adapted in reverse of the norm from uh, film to stage um, what had been a, a John Frankenheimer movie The Young Savages oh yeah. wow so that's big that's pretty heavy material I guess yeah. do you, did you ever have like a fallback if at that point in your mind at all by the time I was 19 or 20 I had gotten somewhat established in the theater mm. in Los Angeles and by established in the theater I don't mean I was getting paid because it was waiver theater but I knew that I would be able to work as an actor and by again not necessarily being paid I would find other jobs to support it but I saw myself very happily continuing doing that well into my 40s yeah. when I thought I would, at that point, have a movie career. And the reason I thought of it that way was because there weren't, in um, 1978, 79, 80, there were not a lot of movies made um, with significant roles for young actors. There had been historically, you know, the James Dean high yeah. school, the, all of that period. But then for all of my time growing up, most of the leading actors in movies were a little bit older. And so I saw any opportunity to work significantly in film as coming much later. So my master plan was to work on the loading docks for Roadway Express to support my acting habit in Waver Theater, and that I'd be perfectly content to do that till about the age of 40 when I would go on to start working in film. And your master plan now? Because oh. you're back directing again. It's your first since Into the Wild, which is yeah. a beautiful movie. Um, it's been a bit of, a, I guess, what, eight years between... Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's always been a long time between movies that I've directed because it's very difficult for me to find that thing that I'm ready to commit years of my life to, which is what the directing yeah. job is. Yeah. Um, we're in a time where cinema is moving in a direction towards a lot of like big, big, big blockbuster properties that seem to be the safest things for Hollywood studios and you know, smaller, more, smaller, interesting movies as well. Have you been offered any of those superhero parts have you ever been sent those do you ever sit down with them and have a think that that's something you might want to do or find a place in that world Does something that interests you at all um i have typically well, wait yeah i have been talked to about some of those things 
I have um, sussed out what it would mean to me to be on location looking at a ceiling going to bed at night, asking myself exactly what I was doing there. And I was able to then, in, in the second column, put the answer to what number I would need to be paid to do it. And in each case, have I outpriced myself? Really? <laughs> by a big, big number or by a small a rather, number? Yeah, by a substantial. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to wrap up shortly, but uh, just just a, another quick question that's a little bit random. But um, being John Malkovich is another film that is beloved. You play obviously a slightly smaller part in that. You cameo. It's I think it's only a thanks credit on your IMDb page, mm-hmm. but you play yourself talking about. The insp- how you were inspired by Malkovich's puppeteering career, and it's kind of hilarious. Did that? How did that come about for you? What are your memories of doing that? Uh, it's just I got a call from Spike. Yeah, and I, and I think you know he is among the few very original directors out there, and uh, a person to, easy to say yes to and hard to say no to. And so I came down, did it. Did he explain what the film what the film was? Uh, he, he explained a little bit. He, he explained a little bit. I was anxious to be surprised when I saw it in the theater, so I didn't read a screenplay or anything like that. No, I just came down, did that bit. You didn't say why can't it be being Sean Penn? John Malkovich can cameo in my movie. No, I was interested in a movie called Being John Malkovich. I'm still interested. I, I'd like to see a sequel. <laughs> still being John Malkovich. <laughs> Sean Penn, thank you very much for joining us on the Empire Podcast. Thanks. Lots of films to get through this week. We're going to get on to the gunman later on. Let's start with... Helen, where should we start? Um, should we start with the voices? Should we start with the voices? I've been hearing the voices. So. <laughs> we should had Gemma Ge- Artson on last week. We did have Gemma Artson on last week. We do like this film. Let's get one of the yes. good ones out of the way this week. Okay, okay let's do it. So this is uh, the story of Jerry, who's played by Ryan Reynolds, who is um, a small-town guy. He works as a shipping uh, sort of coordinator in a, in a factory that makes bathtubs and, and toilets and things. Um, and he has a bit of a crush on Gemma Arterton's character who is uh, who works in the accounts department and is, you know, terribly exotic and loud and everything. And she, he thinks she's wonderful. Um, the problem is, he after some traumatic events in his childhood that we won't talk too much about because it, it sort of becomes apparent during the film, um, he, he is a little bit, let's say, mentally fragile. And he really should be taking his medication. And he really isn't taking his medication because it, it makes him feel a little bit down mm. so um, so instead he's sort of hearing voices um, principally embodied by his cat and dog his cat seems like a force for maybe evil and his dog is you know somewhat more reassuring um, but but things get a little bit out of Jerry's control and um, unfortunate things happen and what we essentially have here is kind of a serial killer rom-com um, sort of it's really quite it's really quite disturbing and yet sometimes almost charming and that makes it even more disturbing. Mm. It's a very odd mix. Um you also have Anna Kendrick in the cast there as well, who I should mention, and Jackie Weaver. It's a really good cast all round. Um it's directed by Marjan Satrapi, who of course uh, broke through with Persepolis. This is about as far from that as it is possible to get. This is her definitely not going to be stereotyped as a director. Um but it is odd. I, I do want people to know that going in. You should know that. Be prepared for something. It, you haven't quite seen anything quite like mm. this, um, which is a good thing. It doesn't always 100% feel like it works, to be honest. The tone is a little bit... It, it does shift a bit. But what I think is really good about this is it keeps you guessing. And actually, if you go back and watch it again, because I've seen this twice now, it, it, it hangs together a lot better the second time. And it... Um, and it feels even sadder 
yeah. the second time. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, really, it's an interesting and quite a brave film, and unlike anything else out there. Uh, three stars for the voices. Yes, yes. Sounds like for some people it might be more of a four. But then again, for some people, it might be more of a more of two. it. Yeah, I think yeah. it's it's it is going to divide people. I think there's going to you're either going to love it or hate it to to coin a cliche. But um, not always not always as funny as you as you maybe want it to be. But I think that's because there's a lot of drama hidden under the surface there. Yeah. So, yeah. It's carved up uh, the opinions of a lot of people I know. Mm. In, annoyingly, one person just said, "Yes, yeah, right." <laughs> <laughs> and I just like, oh well, no, uh, my thesis has gone wrong. Weirdo. Weirdo. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Oh, I quite like the bit when the cat talked. Didn't like mm. it when the dog talked. No. Well, you're either a dog person or a cat person. It's true. Uh, three stars in for the voices. Uh, let's move on next to, I guess this is the big release of the week, which is the Divergent series, mm. colon, Insurgent. Now, previously in the Divergent series... Um, some stuff happened. Some, something happened. Yes, to, to I'm one of the sure characters. it did because it did take two and a half hours. So something, <laughs> I think, yes, must have happened. Yes, um, uh, because the the, let, let the me lady, you guys. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So for some reason, we're in Chicago in the okay. future. The city is walled, and there's been some kind of apocalypse. So pretty much everybody else seems to be dead, and people are living in Chicago, and they're divided into five factions. Mm-hmm. We don't know why. It doesn't make any sense, and it will be explained apparently in the third book, which is spread across two films inevitably. No, um, really. Yes, I'll be honest. I've read the third book, and it still doesn't make sense. But whatever. Okay. Uh, they're divided into factions. Triss, who's a young girl, played by Shailene played by Woodley. Jenny. Oh, yeah, okay. No, very easy That's mistake to make, Chris. Okay. Yep. Um, she discovers, uh, when she's tested to find out which faculty she's most suited for, that she is actually divergent, which is that she has equal uh, capacity for several different factions. And for some obscure reason, and it doesn't still doesn't make any sense to me after two films, um, this makes her a threat to the system. Uh, so... This is a particular problem for Kate Winslet's Janine, who is the leader of the erudite or intelligence faction, um, who is trying to kind of control the whole lot. Um, but Tris, at the end of the first film, um, it, it basically it turned out at the end of the first film she, um, that Janine was using a sort of computer simulation to control people, to essentially brainwash people, and that Divergence were resistant to this program. So I guess that's one reason she's a threat, but it doesn't it still doesn't make any sense. Anyway, uh, Tris is on the run with her boyfriend, Theo James, aka four um and in this film janine gets hold of some artifact and they have to go get it that's it i've also seen this film and i walked out going it's better than the first one i also am in no way sure of what happened (laughs) i needed someone like helen maybe to explain it to me it is a film that has well this is like this because of this and you can't forget that and then there's this group and there's that group and it's a lot of people running after each other running towards a thing, running behind a thing. People suddenly arrive out of nowhere. There's sci-fi. There's, It's both apocalyptic and everything's kind of gone to seed. Yeah. And yet there's also lots of really hyper super tech. And there are people living in kind of grit and dirt and trying to make something out of nothing. People who are factionless. There's like kind of a super hobo group. Um, I'm being very childish here. Yeah, led by Naomi Watts looking exactly like Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow. Bizarre. That's true. There yeah. is a similarity there. I just found it convoluted isn't quite right maybe i just found it very busy yeah and though i enjoyed it it wasn't it wasn't great here's the problem with this whole series and this goes for the maze runner which has exactly the same problem um if your entire premise is a mystery it's really hard for us to care about your plot so the more time you 
you spend on your plot, the less we like your film. Mm-hmm. Um, if we love your characters, we'll let you away with it. And certainly, you know, at the premiere, there were a whole lot of fans who absolutely loved Triss. I, uh, and so they're going to have a good time, I guess. But if you, if you aren't giving us the satisfaction of knowing how your plot actually functions, then we have to absolutely adore the people it's happening to yeah. or there's nothing to connect with there. And, you know... Woodley just about kept me on board this, but it was by the skin of, her, you know, my teeth or her teeth or somebody's teeth. It, it's it's really touch and go as to whether you're actually going to get into this. I mean, it's well put together, and I think they've made every effort to try and, you know, differentiate the factions through design and through colour and everything else. They're doing everything right. I think the problem is just with the source, it, it makes a mystery of its own ethos and therefore it's really hard to get into so which hemsworth brothers in this one <laughs> yeah this is Joel? Uh, theo, theo james hemsworth uh, that's his middle name he's, he's very good i like theo james <laughs> a lot uh, i feel like everyone who's acting in this film is a bit better than this film probably fair yeah. well miles teller is in this film yeah he, he is, is really good he's having <laughs> fun he's the only person on screen who visibly enjoys himself at any point and this is a guy who said about the first film I did it for the paycheck. I wanted to get some uh, more, uh, you know. Yeah. You yeah. know, I wanted to be more known to the by the public, and uh, I, you know, knowing that there's a story of Miles Teller being approached in the street and someone's shouting, "Hey, Whiplash!" I said, you know, do you guys? I was interviewing the two of them, the leads. Do you ever get that in the street? Do you ever get "Hey, Divergent"? It's like, yes, I got it the other day. Someone walked up to me and just shouted, "Divergent!" <laughs> What's the response to that one? Yeah, I was in that. <laughs> you have correctly identified me, sir. Now have an apple and please leave. Busted. Um, this is directed by Robert Schwentke, who, mm-hmm. of course, is the visionary behind uh, RIPD, Red, and Flight Plan. Um, taking over from Neil Berger, how does Schwentke stack up? I, I honestly think they're doing everything right in the execution of this film. I think you know yeah. they they have they have done everything possible to make it make sense. I think they're you know genuinely <laughs> yeah the special effects look good. That sound, and... But that sounds really <laughs> dabbing with faint praise. <laughs> it really does. And they take complicated <laughs> stuff and make it work. But it's they do. Just, yeah. It doesn't work very well. Yeah. I, I honestly no no criticism whatsoever for for the direction for the effects. The effects are great here. There's a couple of really gorgeous sequences in these kind of simulations, which allow them to do crazy, wonderful stuff. Um, and again, I think the cast, uh, like you say, they're better than the film, but that that actually helps a lot um, because Woodley almost single-handedly keeps us going through. I mean, she gets, gets hardly any scenes, really, with four. He's good as far as he's there. That's Theo James. That's Theo James. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, everybody's everybody's good. Everybody's doing well. My problem is just the story doesn't work for me. Well, Helen, I, for one, am excited about seeing Allegiant Part 1 in 2016 and Allegiant Part 2 in 2017. Uh, Allegiant Part 1, as you know, will be the first Divergent series movie to have the character Carrot in it, played by Alicia Heng. Which is exciting. It's very exciting. Um, and I can't wait to see the further adventures of Beatrice Pryor and Tobias Eaton uh, unfold on the big screen. Look at you knowing stuff. Look at so me, anyway. Look at me on the IMDb. Three stars for that one. Three stars for the Divergent series colon Insurgent. Uh, next up... Should we talk about the gunman? Yes. Superhero extraordinaire, gunman, is the one man in the world who can shoot a gun. (laughs) Bitten by a radioactive gun, Jim (laughs) Terrier turns into the gunman. Sean Penn, blessed with a power he does not want, is busy doing humanitarian stuff (laughs) when his hands turn to guns. Uh, No, actually, this is a little bit odd, but let's just read out the official plot here. Okay. The past catches up with retired hitman Jim Terrier when a trio of killers turn up to interrupt his humanitarian work in Africa. Mm -hmm. Escaping with his life, Terrier 
reluctantly takes up arms once more to smoke out his assailants. This sounds like a Sean Penn documentary that someone's just released. That went horribly right. Yes. It's got Javier Bardem in it, who is another very good actor. And though he is given quite, let's say, middling dialogue, there's a lot of good acting going on in this movie made by the director of Taken. Like, you might think of this as being a bit, oh, it's another Taken. And people already calling it, obviously, Sean Penn does Taken. But it's much more of a traditional kind of, let's be honest, subpar Ludlam type thriller Mm. where the person who's going to betray you may or may not be right in front of you type thing and while it doesn't reinvent the wheel Mm. sean penn is a fantastic actor and he sells this whilst looking like an absolute buff ting he is (laughs) built he looks great he has guns for arms now He, he looks great and he takes out the guys efficiently there's some nice set pieces going on here but really it's not much we haven't seen before it will make you long for born you might even think oh i'm gonna go home and watch born after you finish watching it but really taken is probably more enjoyable prospect and if this isn't going for out and out you know enjoyment mm. fun factor it needs to deliver on the on the plot thinky side and it doesn't quite do that in fact its plot is rather basic and it uh delivers it its plot in a kind of unclear way as if to disguise that it's actually quite simple what a cast though what a cast what a cast you got ray winston's floating head you have uh, ray winston's great mark rylance um as a bfg or is he saving that for the actual film no he's playing um a wolf Okay. Uh, Javier Bardem, as you mentioned, uh, Big Driss, Idris Elba's in this one as well. It's a hell of a cast. And, uh, you know, for that alone, it's enjoyable watching these guys. Of course, yeah. Butt heads and... It's, you know, it's stylishly executed. It's yeah. a, a good-looking thing and it works. It's just not as good as it possibly could have been. And, uh, you know, like you say, the acting's great. Given that Pierre Morel's first film after taking was the execrable um, From Paris with Love... Which you and I, Chris, adored watching together in a very lonely... Yes. Screening room. Yes. I, I had to go in a completely different direction, but we spent 20 minutes walking to your bus stop, <laughs> just ranting. <laughs> that is maybe the most like conventionally, publicly racist film I've seen in a long time. It's, it's extraordinary, that film. Yeah. It's absolutely terrible. But uh, it's good to see Pierre Merrill back on track with, yes. um, with this. To an extent, three stars for the gunman. Yeah. And uh, it, is, it is fine at the Bang Bang shooty stuff. Um, should we talk about Home? We had Jim Parsons on the podcast last week. Uh, and this is DreamWorks Animation's latest movie in which he plays a very cute alien. Um, called O. Called O. Now, and, um, Helen, I think you and I are going to have fun talking about this one. Yep. I review this. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it, I think, as much as you did, Helen. I liked it a lot. I gave it a two. I think you're harsh. I think I am being harsh, but I am spoiled by some very good animation uh, and I thought it just wasn't good enough. I'm going to try to explain the plot as simply as I can. There are a race of aliens, small, squishy, purple aliens, sometimes they're not purple, doesn't matter, that come from the space, out of space, they come to Earth because they want to invade it. They want to invade it, take it over. But the reason why is slightly forgivable-ish. It's because there is a big, bad alien race called the Gorg who are chasing them. And these guys, the boobs, the little squishy fellas, they are adorably cowardly. But what they do is they come with a super sci-fi spaceships and they come and take an Earth, an Earth or an Earth-like planet, take it over, relocate all of the people who live in it into a barren area of the Earth. So in this case, they might go to, I don't know, Australia, the outback, and then they terraform it, then they put everyone in lovely houses. But in the meantime, they, the boo, live in the other houses that there were. Okay, are we clear? Yes. This is all part of the movie. Yes. First 15 minutes stuff. One human is not relocated, and that human is the young girl called Tip, who's played by Rihanna. Rihanna also does the music for this film. She is not relocated because she happens to have her cat, Pig, on her head, and the scanners read her as not human, so that's fine. 
Right. So Rihanna's character Tip, the teenage girl, and O, the socially alienated alien who is kind of ostracised from the booth, he is an accidental, flubby idiot that just falls over a lot, keeps saying the wrong thing, everyone thinks he's annoying. They become best mates-ish over the course of a road trip which takes them to Paris and other parts of the world inside a flying car that is powered by slushy machines. I think I've pretty much got it. Tip is looking for a mum who's played by Jennifer Lopez. They need to find out where she is and then get her back and also possibly stop another invasion of Earth. That is the plot of this children's movie. Helen, I like your thoughts. I really enjoyed it. I think here's the thing that worked for me and it's basically the characters. I thought that O was utterly adorable and that his relationship with Tip just developed in some very cute directions, actually. They're kind of a an odd couple who sort of find a nice balance um, between themselves. Um, and I also find it very funny. I think it's it, it genuinely made me laugh out loud at times. Um, not always at O's grammar, but, but sometimes. Yeah, he, um, can I come into the out now? Can I come into the out now? Hmm. Um, yeah, he, he's kind of, why for do you do this? That kind of that kind of thing. Um, I just find him very very charming, and and that sort of made me, you know, put me on board with the film. I also find the the design and so on of the of the aliens quite cool. Uh, the booth used bubbles, uh, sort of bubble based technology, which is kind of cute. I mean, because it's it's a really dark premise actually to be selling as a small kids movie. You know, aliens have taken over the world and chucked us all to the Australian outback, but the booth are so cute and so clueless that they just about get away with it, which I think is actually quite a, a quietly impressive bit of filmmaking. Um, so I just I just thought it was cute. I, it made me laugh, and, and I was heartwarmed by the end of it. Also, interesting side note, I read the book that this is based on, and O's character was originally called J-Lo, because they had to choose human names, and he thought that would be a good one. Um, but apparently there were rights issues, believe it or not, using the name J-Lo, even though J-Lo is in, the, in film. the film. Also, that would just get so meta and confusing. It really would. It's directed by Tim Johnson, who did Anne which I like a lot. Of course, that was based on something by this guy called Willie Allen, so I think that might have been the reason why I liked it more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was also obviously based on this book by a guy called Adam Rex, yes. which is called The True Meaning of Smack Day. Mm. I think this movie is actually a bit of a curio. I think people might come back to it later on and go, actually, there's a little bit of bonkers magic to this, but I personally think it is flavourless, inoffensive, beigey, it'll do stuff. Steve Martin mugs the hell out of it. Um, mm. He plays the king of the booths, the... Smack. Smack. I described it in possibly the third uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy reference of the Maze of Others podcast. I gave the verdict of this film as mostly harmless. It is pretty much fine, but actually not good enough. Two stars for home. A better animation comes out this week is the latest from Studio Ghibli, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Helen. Yes, this is, I mean, I liked Homo a lot more than Ali did, but this is a far, far better film. Having now seen it, I actually have to confess, I saw this after the Oscars. Um, Having now seen it, I think that Big Hero 6 and my beloved Baymax committed Grand Theft Oscar. This is an astonishing film. And honestly, the only explanation for it not winning the best Oscar is that not enough voters must have seen it. But it is utterly wonderful. So this is from Isao Takahata. Apologies for my pronunciation, who is the other co-founder of Studio Ghibli. Um, And it's based on an old Japanese legend which had a a bamboo cutter finding a tiny princess, sort of a couple of inches high, in a glowing bamboo stock. And he took her home and she turned into a baby and grew up into this beautiful girl. 
Um, meanwhile, he, he cut open another bamboo and find, you know, find treasure, find gold coins within and find beautiful silks and, and robes and kimonos for her. So he basically decided she, she was obviously destined to be a princess. So he moves them to the big city. He he, he sets them up in style. He, he has her take lessons in how to be a properly behaved Japanese lady um, so that rich men will come to court her, which she has no interest in. And it's sort of, I don't want to say too much about the plot, but it goes on from there. It is astonishing, this animation. There is a scene where she runs out of a party that is the most gorgeous piece of animation I have seen in my entire life. she It's basically sort of based on Japanese kind of watercolours and, and almost the, the, the kind of calligraphy brush strokes and the charcoal kind of colours that you see in, in Japanese classical art. Um, but it is utterly gorgeous. I mean, sometimes he'll leave he'll leave white space around the edge of the picture. He'll just mm. kind of give you the impressionistic uh, impression of the landscape and even of the character sometimes. Um, but it works so, so beautifully. Um, and, it, and it, you know, builds into this kind of almost religious folktale uh, that I think there's a lot of stuff there for the adults that maybe kids watching it won't necessarily get. But, I mean, on whatever level you watch it, this is one of the most gorgeous films that has ever been made. And I think... You know, it's 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 a reminder that there is actually more to Studio Ghibli than the great Miyazaki. That Takahata is is you know equally talented. He did Grave of the Fireflies, so you know, which is one of the most moving cartoons I think mm. ever made. Uh, this one I would put on the same level almost as that. It's it's stunning. So it's good then. A little bit good. good. Four stars for the tale of the Princess Kaguya. Uh, go and check it out if you can. Uh, I think it's a limited release this weekend. And that is it for this week's Empire Podcast Cinematic Feast. Uh, Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by two more heavyweights and another knight. Ooh. In the shape of Antonio Banderas, who's not a knight, and Sir Kenneth Branagh, who is. Uh, That's a hell of a lineup. Good lineup. Uh, Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Ali. Bye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to pick a pair of pickle... Pumps. Pumps. There you go. Sorry about the popping. See you next week. Bye-bye.